Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Donald Trump fulfilled one of the decades-long goals of the American far-right when he transformed the Supreme Court into a far-right majority body that will have huge impact long after he is gone. To look at that shift, what it means for the court and what it means for the country, I've invited Joan Biskupic to the show. Joan is CNN's Supreme Court analyst and author of the new book, Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. Joining us to share her fascinating new reporting here is CNN legal analyst Joan Biskupic. An early draft of a coming Supreme Court decision leaked to the public late yesterday suggests that by this summer, a majority of the justices will overturn Roe versus Wade. So help me God. So help me God. Now on behalf of all the members of the court, I am pleased to welcome Justice Jackson to the court and to our common calling. Hanging over all of this is record low public opinion of the court and allegations of ethics violations. I'm Joan Biskupic. I'm CNN senior Supreme Court analyst. And a Supreme Court official once admonished me, if we had wanted you to know that, we would have told you. But I kept digging. Sorry, not sorry. Joan, I'm so glad that you're here with us on the podcast. Before we get into your book, Nine Black Robes, will you just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, where you came from, and what you do? Thank you, Alyssa, and it's great to be here. I come from the South Side of Chicago. I'm half Croatian, half Irish from the South Side of Chicago. Grew up there and then got the journalism bug very early. Went to J School in Wisconsin and then started covering state capitals and soon gravitated into courts, legal analyses. And my first really important job covering the Supreme Court was when I was with what was a magazine called Congressional Quarterly. And they still exist in various formats, but it was back in the late 80s, early 90s here in Washington, D.C., covered the Clarence Thomas hearings, covered the David Souter hearings. And then the Washington Post picked me up in 1992 to be its full-time Supreme Court reporter. And, Alyssa, I was going to law school on the side. That was way back in the day when you could do lots of things on the side. It wasn't 24-7. In fact, I even had a baby while I was in law school and covering the Supreme Court full-time for the Washington Post. I don't know how I did it. People always ask. I think it's because the media business was so different then. We didn't have iPhones. You'd get home at seven and you were basically done unless you got a phone call about some odd ruling on the West Coast. Anyway, so I was at the Washington Post in the 90s. Then I started to write books and switched to USA Today, still as a reporter. And then I switched to Reuters in early 2012 as a legal affairs editor in charge, where I began doing projects. And that was my first step away from daily coverage of the Supreme Court. I still go up there almost every day, but I am one of the luckiest Supreme Court correspondents around because I get to 
do analyses, special stories off the court business, but I'm still there all the time. So that started a little bit more than a decade ago. And then I went out to California and taught for a year, taught law school at the University of California, Irvine, and then became a full-time CNN Supreme Court analyst in 2017, and then continued doing the books. You're nice enough to have me on for Nine Black Robes, but my first book was on Sandra Day O'Connor in 2005. Then in 2009, I did Justice Antonin Scalia. Then I did a political history of Sonia Sotomayor's nomination. And then the one that probably many of your listeners know was in 2019, The Chief on John Roberts. Good evening. One of the most consequential decisions the president makes is his appointment of a justice to the Supreme Court. When a president chooses a justice, he's placing in human hands the authority and majesty of the law. The decisions of the Supreme Court affect the life of every American. And so a nominee to that court must be a person of superb credentials and the highest integrity. A person who will faithfully apply the Constitution and keep our founding promise of equal justice under law. I have found such a person in Judge John Roberts. Thank you for taking us through all of that. It is incredible when you think about how different things are and how this idea that women could have it all, I think, was during that era where it seemed like anything was possible. And I am sad to think that things have changed so much for us. And I could do an entire podcast episode just on that alone. Oh, and I don't want to suggest at all that I had it all. It was hard. And I only had one child. You have multiples there. I knew my limitations. But I think it was more possible to have it all. Yes, I think you're exactly right, Alyssa, because right now you're pinged all the time, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. There's no time away, but also I feel like making a living now as far as just the financials of what it takes to live, it's just astronomical. And so I feel like the grind is such that we're not really able to take a breath and enjoy the hard work and our successes but also our family, because it's just this grind of trying to make ends meet. And I feel like that. And I am so privileged. I can't imagine what the family of four living paycheck to paycheck feels like. It's a very difficult time, I think, to raise a family. And I think the more we say that, the more it means that we're not living in this facade that everything's going to be okay and that things are okay just the way they are. I think we have to push for change. But I digress. Because, you know, anytime I speak to a woman who is successful, I always want to have this conversation because I'm just so fascinated by what everybody does to make things work. And at a certain extent, we just do what we have to do, right? That's right. And can I just tell you something about covering the female justices on the Supreme Court along that line? Because I'm always quoting to my younger woman colleagues here, the Supreme Court justices, so much about their experiences. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for one, used to say on the can we have it all, all in good time was her mantra. And she would say, you know, the frustrations of raising young children and being pulled in so many different directions, the thing to hold on to is that this is not forever. You will be raising these children for a period of years, 15, 18 years that they'll be in the home and demanding all your attention. And then you'll be able to move on and devote more time to your work. So everything doesn't have to happen all at one time. So she, I always thought of her as somebody who was inspiring in terms of how she was able to incrementally do many things. And Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, my first book subject, who was obviously the first woman on the Supreme Court, she raised three boys. And, you know, this was back in an era where husbands were not coming home at lunchtime and, you know, doing shifts. And she managed to be a state legislator, then a state judge, then a Supreme Court justice. And again, just worked through it week after week, month after month, and had the bulk of her really successful professional life when those boys were older. It's really incredible. I want to go back to 2000. And I want to talk about the Rehnquist Court. Will you just remind us the makeup of that court? Who was there and how did it operate? 
Sure. And it's interesting you take that touchstone because obviously that was the year of Bush v. Gore. And I remember through the 90s with the Rehnquist court, working full-time at the Washington Post, always referring to this conservative court, which now does not look so conservative. But we basically had five right-leaning justices and four left-leaning justices, but there was more of a middle. And Chief Justice Bill Rehnquist, a Wisconsin native who had taken a turn through Arizona and, in fact, once dated Sandra Day O'Connor, was there at the helm. And Sandra Day O'Connor was there. Anthony Kennedy was there. There were two other Republican appointees on the court at the time. Well, actually, there were more than two, but there were two who were very moderate. And that was John Paul Stevens from Chicago, also from the South Side, where I'm from, and David Souter from New Hampshire. And Justice Stevens had been appointed by Gerald Ford in 1975. And David Souter had been appointed George H.W. Bush in 1990 to succeed William Brennan. So there were justices who had some conservative leanings, but ended up being more liberal as time went by. And then the liberals on the court were, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg appointed in 1993. After careful reflection, I am proud to nominate for Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. I will send her name to the Senate to fill the vacancy created by Justice White's retirement. As I told Judge Ginsburg last night, when I called to ask her to accept the nomination, I decided on her for three reasons. First, in her years on the bench, she has genuinely distinguished herself as one of our nation's best judges. Progressive in outlook, wise in judgment, balanced and fair in her opinions. Stephen Breyer appointed in 1994. And then you also had, let me see who else was there at the time, the kind of holdovers who eventually left, Stevens and Souter, who we were considering liberals until they left respectively in 2009 and 2010, but they were not Democratic appointees. Whereas now, Alyssa, we have this unusual court where all six of the right-wing justices were appointed by Republicans and all three of the left-wing justices are Democratic appointees. Why is that dangerous? Because of the, what it signals to people. And I think this is something that even members of the court, including Chief Justice John Roberts, are concerned about. If your rulings are constantly six to three and the conservatives, all appointed by Republicans, appear to be fulfilling a political agenda, not just the legal agenda, it signals to the public that their independence, the integrity of the judiciary is in doubt. And in fact, that's what polls have shown, especially since the Dobbs ruling back in June of last year. And the Supreme Court historically has been very secretive, right? Like we don't get a window into deliberations. We don't generally get to see proceedings unfold as they do unfold. Why is that? Okay, for a couple different reasons. But I have to say, you can't believe how hard I have worked over you know, decades, frankly, to get behind the scenes and to figure out what happens and to understand who might have switched to vote and why a justice switched to vote and what persuaded him or her. And I've been successful doing it, but Never have I gotten the kind of document that was leaked back in May of 2022, the Dobbs ruling. But why are they secretive? First of all, they want to have their deliberations protected. And I understand that. I understand why their oral arguments are public. When they release their decisions, they're public. They want the internal debate to stay internal. And I understand that, although I'm always trying to figure out who's up, who's down, how are they maneuvering? And I often will try to recreate how we got a decision once we get that decision. Again, were there any switched votes? Who controlled behind the scenes? Whose fingers had more to do with this ruling than might be obvious when you see the finished document? But I think they rightfully will say, if people know where they're leaning or how they're voting behind the scenes, it makes it harder for them to deal in good faith with each other and maybe change votes. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit, I'm sure, from 
how you want to march through things. But I will just say that Dobbs leak in May of 2022 did have the effect of locking in everyone. I don't know if Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett would have ever switched their votes under persuasion from the chief. But once it was all public, it was very hard to have, obviously, confidential dealings. It's really interesting because part of me just feels like the secrecy makes it harder for people to view the court as legitimate. Yes. And one other thing I should say is I was just speaking in terms of the secrecy about deliberations themselves. But then let's step back and think about other practices at the Supreme Court. For example, recusals. When the justices take themselves out of cases, they don't explain why. These are the kinds of things that I think not the core deliberations, but these other practices at the Supreme Court, the lack of a formal ethics code, the reluctance to talk about if they get COVID, if they're ill, if there's anything that might be impairing them from working on cases, their travel schedules, their speeches ahead of time, those kinds of things, I believe, as they were more open and tried to connect a little bit more with the public, not on the particular ups and downs of cases, but generally about their work, their ethical practices that might inspire some confidence. I think they would have much more goodwill. The chief justice, who I do believe is trying to get them to do a formal ethics code behind the scenes, does resist this idea that the justices should be in a position of trying to educate the public. He at times has said that he does not see that as part of the judicial mission. They're supposed to decide cases. But I think your question gets to the point of, doesn't this court also want to inspire confidence in the public? And being more open about its activities beyond how they're going to rule in a particular case, I believe, would inspire more confidence. Well, and we hear so much about transparency now, right? Like transparency. We talk about just how things function all the time. So it feels like anything that isn't functioning with a certain level of transparency, I think we naturally have this idea that it's not functioning the way it should or ethically. I want to talk about when Chief Justice Rehnquist died and was replaced by John Roberts. The early John Roberts court faced a lot of issues, you know, where it seemed to come down farther to the right than previous courts would come. For example, the rulings on terrorism and Citizens United really just shaped the national identity at that time. And now, as well, we are still feeling those repercussions. This week, the United States Supreme Court handed a huge victory to the special interests and their lobbyists and a powerful blow to our efforts to rein in corporate influence. This ruling strikes at our democracy itself. By a 5-4 vote, the court overturned more than a century of law including a bipartisan campaign finance law written by Senators John McCain and Russ Feingold that had barred corporations from using their financial clout to directly interfere with elections by running advertisements for or against candidates in the crucial closing weeks. What was going on behind the scenes in that court? And what were the relationships like? What were the dynamics like? Can you fill us in on any of that? Yes, and that was a real prelude to what we have here. John Roberts is probably generally as conservative as William Rehnquist. So that was that was a bit of a wash. But just a few months after John Roberts succeeded Bill Rehnquist, Samuel Alito succeeded Sandra Day O'Connor in January 2006. And Justice Alito, Republican appointee, just like Sandra Day O'Connor, was so different. He was really much firmer on the right wing. Sandra Day O'Connor, by the time she left in January of 2006, was really straddling the middle and voting many times with the left. She had voted to preserve affirmative action, for example. She had voted to uphold abortion rights, two things that Samuel Alito was against. So just as John Roberts comes in, he essentially has a court in his own image. He is able to move the court more rightward. And before we even get to the current issues of abortion and affirmative action, he was able to start moving the court further to the right on those issues. And as you say, Citizens United in 2010. And then the other ruling that I think really defined two other rulings that defined the Roberts court early on, they were both on race. John Roberts forever 
has been against racial remedies, dating to his time working in the Reagan administration in the early 80s. And he, in 2007, in a case called Parents Involved versus Seattle Schools, uttered that famous line, the way to stop discrimination based on race is to stop discriminating based on race essentially saying we don't want benefits, any compensations, whatever. We just want to have his idea of a colorblind society. And then in 2013, a decision that I think just has had so many ramifications, that was the Shelby County versus Holder ruling, a five to four ruling. Chief Justice Roberts writes the decision, essentially saying things have changed enough in America not to need some protections of the Voting Rights Act that had been key. And this was obviously a landmark law from 1965. And it has, as I said, had reverberations in terms of states and localities changing their voting laws to make it harder in some situations for racial minorities to, you know, exercise the franchise. The other thing I find really, really interesting and something that you have seen the evolution of these relationships, but historically, the court has forged like these friendships that you would never think that two people could actually be friends, right? These alliances between people who are not ideologically aligned. And it's fascinating to me, especially when you look at how politically divided we are now. Just take Justices Scalia and Ginsburg, for example, or the alliance between Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Tell us about some of those unexpected relationships and how they were even possible, what has changed, and how they shape the court. I have tracked a lot of the internal relations, both on cases and friendships, both in the chief and especially now in Nine Black Robes, because I started sensing when Donald Trump came to office and was such a polarizing force, had such disdain for the judiciary, that he had an effect on the justices behind the scenes. And I should say that Chief Justice John Roberts already was much more tactical, even cagey, than Chief Justice Rehnquist. And that inspired some tensions even before Donald Trump became president. There were some suspicions, especially, you know, on the part of Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas when Chief Justice Roberts switched his vote twice in the Obamacare case. And 2012. And that had a lot of fallout over the years. And then in comes Donald Trump, and he appoints three new justices who are chosen specifically for their strong ideology and their views that will help him carry out his agenda. Remember, he promised to appoint justices who would vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, and we ended up with three justices who voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. So that kind of polarized thinking further infects the court. And as Clarence Thomas himself even said right after the Dobbs leak, he liked Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was completely his ideological opposite, as she was Antonin Scalia, who was definitely one of her deep pals. In my treasure trove of memories, an early June morning, 1996, I was about to leave the court to attend the Second Circuit Judicial Conference at Lake George. Justice Scalia entered, papers in his hand. Tossing many pages on my desk, he said, Ruth, this is the penultimate draft of my dissent in the VMI case. It's not yet in shape to circulate to the court but I want to give you as much time as I can to answer it. On the plane to Albany, I read the dissent. It was a zinger. (laughs) But he said, I could trust where she was coming from. I knew where she was coming from. And I took that line to be an implicit remark against the chief. And he even had used the date of 2005 as he was making his remarks about the good old days in 2005 was when John Roberts came on. And I think it's because John Roberts, for one reason or another, didn't inspire the kind of fellow feeling that Chief Justice Rehnquist had. But, you know, I'm only getting it from the justices as they tell me what it feels like inside. I'm not inside. So I should tell you that as much as I'm constantly talking to justices and trying to figure out 
what is happening on cases and what is happening with relations, I necessarily have to depend on as many voices as I can hear from inside. But I have to say something that's been consistent and growing over the years is a level of distrust. And I think the reason the Trump years exacerbated it was just because of the polarization on the outside that you, of course, have experienced in watching the political field. And when Donald Trump specifically chooses people for an agenda, irrespective of their legal qualifications and their experiences, that can't help but affect the justices. So what the chief does, and the chief justice, John Roberts, knew Brett Kavanaugh really well. He is and had been a pal of uh, Brett Kavanaugh's. I think it forces the chief to try to almost paradoxically control cases in a way where the court will look as politically divided. Now, he was able to do that, Alyssa, after Anthony Kennedy left in 2018 and before Amy Coney Barrett came on. Chief Justice John Roberts was right at the center of the court and his vote mattered the most. So he actually built coalitions where he tried to lower the temperature and diffuse some of the politicking. But once we got to October 2020, when Amy Coney Barrett succeeded Ruth Bader Ginsburg, all bets were off. The far right didn't need his vote. And that's how we got the Dobbs case. So do you think that there are friendships or at least alliances that exist in the current extremely divided court? Do you think it's even possible? I think it's possible, but I do think there are fewer of them. Justice Stephen Breyer, who last session succeeded by Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, was the sort of justice who was always trying to make light of situations and encourage fellow feeling. You know, he had worked on the Hill for a lot of years for Senator Ted Kennedy. So he had a mindset that we can bring people to the table. And certainly Sandra Day O'Connor had that mindset, just as Elena Kagan has that mindset. But just as Elena Kagan is essentially an island in some ways right now, as is the chief. So I don't know, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor was constantly trying to arrange bridge games and outings and things like that to get the justices to do more. And that kind of social glue does not exist anymore on this court. Yeah. And I also feel there is a difference between friendships and alliances. And I think just to make the country better, I feel like there should be a certain amount of alliance. It's so ironic that you're literally a judge, right? You're laying down judgment on what's constitutional, what's fair, what is justice. And yet you're not able to not make a political statement with it. The irony of it is just so above anything that my brain can comprehend. Can I tell you what does bring them together? It's outsiders, it's critics, it's commentators, it's the news media. If they feel that one of them has been unfairly attacked, or even if they might agree with the criticism, but they just don't want the scrutiny, they close ranks against the media, they close ranks against outside commentators. And what some of them have told me as individuals, they're the only ones who understand their jobs and If you keep, if you rail against them, they will probably like each other better. I understand that, though. Like, nobody understands the inner workings and dynamics of a relationship, of a job, but the people who are actually living that life. I get it. It seems to me that something fundamentally shifted in how the court is formulated when Mitch McConnell refused to hold hearings on Merrick Garland's nomination in 2016. And instead, we end up with Neil Gorsuch. How do you think that affected the court? I think that especially affected that affected the court inside and especially affected the public view of it. I have a chapter in Nine Black Robes about the triumvirate, Mitch McConnell, Don McGahn, who was White House counsel, and Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society, and how much they worked as a team to produce the Supreme Court that we have now. And the fact that Mitch McConnell was able to hold open that Scalia seat from February 2016. Let's find out more about the Republican strategy in the Senate. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell joins us now from Capitol Hill. Senator, thanks for being here. Glad to be with you. Will Justice Garland, Judge Garland, get a hearing? No, I don't think so. Justice Scalia died on February 13th, 2016, and Mitch McConnell did something very daring. In fact, he acknowledged that it was daring. He decided that weekend, it was President's Day weekend, that he would ensure 
that there was not even any meetings with Merrick, with whoever was going to be nominated, and it turned out to be Merrick Garland, of course. No meetings with that individual, no hearings at all. And he later said that he doesn't think he could have pulled that off if the Senate had been in session that weekend or at that time, because he would have had fellow Republican senators saying, what do you mean? We've got all these months before the November election and we're going to do nothing. But Mitch McConnell just had been so prepared for that moment. I trace back Mitch McConnell's interest in the Supreme Court that goes back way before he was even a senator. He had followed nominations. And then when he became a senator, he was one of the last members of the Senate to speak when the Robert Bork nomination went down in 1987. And he essentially said, you'll rue the day. And he obviously became more powerful and was able to do what he did in 2016. And I think what it did was it produced a great degree of cynicism on the part of the public and wariness of people who are in the system and expected to work. Who knows why the Obama administration didn't pressure Republican senators more if it even had the ability to do that or why people didn't rise up. Obviously, a lot of Americans thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win that 2016 election. So people thought Merrick Garland or somebody else is going to get an opportunity for that Scalia seat. But we all know what happened. So during the first part of Trump's presidency, he appointed Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, right? So how did that transform Robert's position on the court? And then how did the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett change that position? Okay, so Neil Gorsuch is essentially a one-to-one trade for Justice Scalia in terms of ideology. Both conservatives, both rule similarly. Brett Kavanaugh made the court more conservative because Justice Anthony Kennedy had been a bit of a swing vote. Remember, he had voted to uphold abortion rights. He had voted to uphold affirmative action after earlier being against it. And Justice Kennedy gave the country Obergefell versus Hodges, the 2015 landmark decision that made same-sex marriage legal nationwide. He was the author of the ruling that declared there was a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. Justice Kennedy's legacy, you know, it had very strong liberal strands within it, even though he was appointed by Ronald Reagan. In fact, he got the seat that Robert Bork didn't get. But anyway, so the court is already moving right with Kavanaugh succeeding Kennedy. but. That dynamic does give Chief Justice John Roberts running room at the middle, because at that point, from summer of 2018 until October of 2020, John Roberts is it. He can essentially decide the law of the land by his key fifth vote. And that's at a time when he is trying to move the court only incrementally. He's trying not to do too much. I would say with the exception of race, where he's always wanted to roll back racial remedies, and on some religious conservatism issues. But on other social policy, he's moving incrementally and he has a lot of control. In October of 2020, when Mitch McConnell, the same man who had blocked President Obama's appointment to succeed Scalia, is able to race through the Donald Trump nomination of Amy Coney Barrett in just a matter of weeks, it changes everything. Right now, we have five justices, and they essentially can do whatever they want to do with him or without him. And I think what we're seeing is, for example, in the guns ruling of last year that invalidated the New York guns law, the Bruin case, John Roberts joined him because I think now his mindset is he's not going to fight him. He's going to join him so he can control the assignment of the opinion and he control what it says. Feels like Chief Justice Roberts is being held hostage by the far right wing. Yes, on many things like abortion. But don't forget that John Roberts himself is pretty far right. So, you know, something so unprecedented happened, of course, with the leak of the abortion decision. What effect did that have inside the court and then just the perception of the court? It affected so much. I will never forget where I was at 832 on that Monday night when I got word that Politico had published this leaked draft. That must have been wild for you. It was. And in fact, Alyssa, I was actually on a Zoom call with my daughters. We would do it on Sunday night, but we postponed it because I had just gotten back from a trip to Stanford for something. And so there we were that Monday night. And 
Normally, I wouldn't even have had my phones on the dining room table with the Zoom setup with my husband, but I did. And I look at my phone and it's work. And I'm like, gosh, what happened? So it affects every nook and cranny of the Supreme Court is affected by this. After May 2nd of last year, protesters took to the streets and to the steps of the Supreme Court to protest a decision that had not technically been made yet. But the whole country already had access to every word of it in print. A draft opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health overturning Roe v. Wade had been leaked to and published by Politico. Emotions were high and people were on edge, including the justices of the Supreme Court themselves. Chief Justice John Roberts called the leak a, quote, betrayal of the confidences of the court and tasked the marshal of the court with investigating it. Today, the court announced that the marshal's investigation is essentially over and they still do not know who did it. And as we know, they did a month-long investigation that produced no culprit. They don't know how it happened. They've tried to tighten various security. How do you think it happened? Okay, I, I should say, first of all, I don't know. I have lots of speculation. I actually think the document might have changed hands at some point because I don't believe, I think there's a chance that Politico isn't quite sure who it got it from because they talked a lot about vetting it. And I actually don't think it was originally turned over by a justice or a law clerk. I think maybe it might have been a full-time employee or somebody brought it home and some roommate got it or something like that. And eventually it finds its way to political. I know that there are all sorts of people who think that, of course, it must have been a conservative justice or law clerk because of how it locked in the votes. I would say it definitely had that effect. But I'm still not willing to believe that these rule-following clerks would have jeopardized their career for this kind of thing. But anyway, somehow it gets out. Somehow it makes its way to Politico. And they publish all 98 pages of it. And it, first of all, it completely rattles the justices. And they're worried at the time, could there be more? Could more opinions be released? What's going to happen? And they've since tried to tighten their processes inside. But it really exposed how vulnerable they were on these things. And it also, I have to say, you know, my whole business revolves around getting justices to talk to me about things. But I've often found out about deliberations as they were ongoing, but I never had a document the size of what Politico had. Usually I hear things from somebody telling me, and then I wait to see the ruling, and then I can recreate it and pull back the curtain for readers on how this ruling came to be and what would be intriguing about how the votes lined up and changed over the weeks and months of deliberations. But it really affected the justices in terms of their concerns about security. But then it also generated even more distrust among them. And then, you know, these questions about the court's legitimacy in the basic ruling itself. As I'm sure you know, the justices didn't take this Mississippi case to overturn Roe, but it turned out they actually did take this case to overturn Roe. But they had told the public they were only going to be looking at this 15-week ban. But then they went all the way, which just was just so shattering. What was the part that was most shocking to you? Was it that it was leaked or was it the judgment that came down? That's an excellent question because I remember that night after I recovered myself and just said to the rest of my family, okay, I'm leaving right now, everyone. And they continued their little Zoom talk. And I just got in the car and like flew all the way from my house to the studio here because I had to quick go on air. And one thing I said was, this is startling in every way. The fact that they're rolling back nearly a half century of precedent and women's privacy rights. That in and of itself was staggering. And I should tell you, Alyssa, I knew I didn't have to guess about the authenticity. That day, I had actually been doing some reporting on my own to see where the state of play was. So I had sort of known that the chief hadn't been making headway with Justice Kavanaugh to get him to start switching his vote. So I sort of, the minute I saw it and looked real and Politico is legitimate enough that I knew that they wouldn't have published it if they didn't think it was real. But it jived with what I thought had been happening without having the benefit of seeing anything, any document like that. 
So I was struck by what these five justices were going to do. It takes a minimum of five to declare a ruling. And here we had a minimum of five rolling back this 1973 milestone. And then the way it was exposed to the public, people ran down to the Supreme Court and began their protests. This state of confusion arose. And it also showed, I think that also hurt the public idea of, does the court even have its act together that these documents are leaking out so early? I think that exacerbated a lot of the concern also. But part of it was like, for me, this is why we were all, I don't want to use the word hysterical because it's often used against women, but we were up in arms about Kavanaugh. Like when I went to the Kavanaugh hearing, it was because we knew that this is what they wanted. And so how many years ago was that? For me, there wasn't the shock of, yeah, it was more of like, we told you that this was going to happen. We saw that this was going to happen. Nobody believed us. When we were at the Supreme Court during the hearings, no one took it seriously. By the way, there are organizations that do this every single day that didn't think it was going to happen. Oh, that's so true. And you know, it's interesting. You'll see in the book, I talk about how Kavanaugh's colleagues were regarding him during this period because despite his past record, which it had been certainly anti-abortion, anti-abortion rights on the lower court, and despite what people suspected of him because by virtue of his sheer appointment by Donald Trump, I think there were sufficient number of justices inside who thought maybe he'll want to move slowly the way the chief did. And I have to say, he sent mixed signals. He sent mixed signals on an abortion case that preceded this from Louisiana. And then he sent mixed signals in the Texas SB8 case. And then on the Dobbs one, I can easily see why the chief thought that maybe he could be persuaded over. But when you step back from the whole thing, you're exactly right that people should have seen this coming. And the one thing I will say is I proposed this book in late 2019, early 2020. And my original game plan was to just basically look at the Trump effect and look at the maneuvering inside the court. And I didn't think I would have a ruling like Dobbs as the centerpiece of this book. I thought I'm going to be talking about how the effect of each new justice shifted the bearings of all of them. This is a very conservative, aggressive new court. And we've seen it in a number of opinions uh, this term. I think it was probably clearest in their decision to take on the abortion case and the gun case. In the gun situation, the court had been turning away numerous gun rights petitions, usually with a dissenting opinion written by Justice Thomas uh, saying that the court had made a constitutional orphan of the Second Amendment. But after Justice Barrett came on the bench, uh, the court took the case. And with the abortion case, the court reached out to take this case uh, when they didn't have to. I think this court uh, has a younger majority now. And yes, uh, these new justices, primarily the three appointed by former President Trump, know where they want to go. Then when they decide to take the Dobbs case, this was in May of 2021, they issued an order saying they were going to take the Dobbs case and they were going to, they said at the time, they were going to confine it just to Mississippi's 15-week ban. I told my publisher, I definitely cannot finish this book until we get the ruling. So what happens though, Alyssa, is you know, I'm basically written most of the book and then I'm waiting. And obviously in May, I get where the ruling's going to be. And I don't know for sure if everybody's locked in, but then it becomes crystal clear on June 24th, 2022, when we see the ruling. And I was one of the people who kept saying, I think Chief Justice John Roberts could still have a hand to play. I will never count him out. No matter how much I said that publicly, when I went back and looked at everything I wrote up to that point, I saw it coming, even though I didn't see it coming. There was a real narrative arc in my book that I didn't even know I was producing that led us to the Dobbs decision. And did the Federalist Society have anything to do with that? Because I also think, you know, when I look back at the plan of the far right, the Federalist Society and the grooming that it has done from kids in law school up until judges and this list that 
they've put people on that will continue their political ideology. Tell us what you think about the Federalist Society. How has it shaped this court? And more broadly, what the role of outside forces in shaping the judiciary should be? The Federalist Society so seriously shaped this court. Every one of the current Republican appointees was vetted in some way by leaders of the Federalist Society, including John Roberts. John Roberts would have ended up on the Supreme Court even without the Federalist Society, but he had to sort of run that routine also. And of the Trump appointees, though, they were hand-delivered by the Federalist Society. And as Don McGahn, who was White House counsel, has said, it's not like we outsourced to the Federalist Society. We insourced. We are the Federalist Society. He was a Federalist Society president of his law school, Widener. Leonard Leo, the night of Antonin Scalia's death, Leonard Leo called Mitch McConnell's people to let him know what had happened, because Leonard Leo is a very close friend of the Scalia family. So he knew early on about Justice's death in Texas. And so he quickly alerted Mitch McConnell. And he had always been very tight with Mitch McConnell on judges. Don McGahn, the night of Scalia's death, called Donald Trump, who then is a Republican candidate and is about to go on stage for a Republican debate among candidates that night in South Carolina and says to him, here are some suggestions for how to handle this issue. And Donald Trump said, delay. And I've got some ideas of who we can put on there. And then, of course, Don McGahn, who is so invested in the shape of the judiciary and working hand in glove with the Federal Society, becomes White House counsel. So that's why Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader at the time, Don McGahn and Leonard Leo, all have such a hand in not only who gets on the Supreme Court, but who gets into other important judicial positions in lower courts. Okay, so here is my question for you as an expert, as someone who has been covering, who has been as inside as you could get into the inner workings of the Supreme Court. Do you know what the question is going to be? It could be a lot of things. So go ahead. Shoot. Do you think the courts need to be reformed? Okay. I sat through all the effort of that Supreme Court commission that looked at, you know, should they have term limits? Should they expand the court? I think right now the way the court is set up is not inspiring confidence. And here's the other thing. I thought you might have been asking of how long will this go on? I think easily 50 years. I've looked at studies of presidential appointments and strategic retirements. Some professors at Yale did a rate study that I found very credible, but probably incredibly dispiriting to you, that if you even give Democrats a 50-50 shot of winning the White House in upcoming years and Republicans 50-50, just given the youthfulness of the current conservatives, this is your lifetime and your children will be seriously affected by this court over time. Now, a lot of people who were against term limits and who were against court expansion have become more open to it just because of where the court is at. I think the idea of set term limits of 18 years could be a possibility that a lot of people would subscribe to, but there's a very serious question of whether that would be constitutional without a constitutional amendment, because right now, Article Three judges and justices are appointed for life. And there are some law professors who have thought of workarounds. You know, someone goes on the Supreme Court and then they go on to a lower court later after 18 years. But even the president of the United States, Joe Biden, has been against any significant structural reform of the Supreme Court. It's not going to happen. Okay. Well, that leads me to my last question, which I ask all of my guests. What gives you hope? Lots of people who I run into, are still hopeful, still believe in the law, still believe that the country is moving ahead, that young people are engaged. I'm just basically a person who's optimistic and hopeful. And, you know, I've seen justices change over time, and I've seen the court defy expectations. So as much as I just said that you're looking at the court that you'll be looking at for the next 50 years, who knows what they will do? And also, who knows what state courts will do and state legislatures will do? We were talking about individual rights and privacy and especially women's issues that are so critical, but they're in the hands of people beyond the Supreme Court also. They're in the hands of people who you have had on your show who are 
activists from all sorts of persuasions who can make a difference. And that's what I believe in. Joan Biskupik, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you. And I am not sorry I joined you. In rare rapid succession, the justices have been disavowing politics. I think the court was thought to be the least dangerous branch, and we may have uh, become the most dangerous. The Supreme Court on a PR offensive. We don't trade votes, and members of the court have different judicial philosophies. Justice Amy Coney Barrett, in a speech along Mitch McConnell, insisting the court is not comprised of a bunch of partisan hacks. The blitz, a sign of growing concern about the court's credibility. Not since Bush against Gore has the public perception of the court's legitimacy seemed so seriously threatened. Public approval of the Supreme Court has hit its lowest level in more than two decades, down 18 points from last year, sinking nine points just since July. I have to tell you, my stomach turns over when I remember just how much lasting damage Donald Trump did to this country when he packed the court with extremists. The pain that rulings will cause and are already causing is beyond our ability to measure. It doesn't stop at abortion and women's rights, although the fact that there are two credibly accused abusers of women on the court right now is obviously horrifying. Instead, it will linger into economic justice, racial justice, access to the vote, LGBTQ issues, gun violence, the environment, and so much more. President Biden and the Democrats missed an essential opportunity to reform the court, adding in term limits for justices appointed to the Supreme Court, expanding the size of the courts, and setting up oversight of federal courts, for example. And for that failure our country will suffer. This is an issue we have to press immediately when we next hold the united government. Or our country may not be recognizable in just a few years. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not 